Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. As a person who grew up far from a border in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri, borders fascinated me as soon as I learned I wanted to travel. Having lived now in Missouri, Hawaii, Mexico, England, Canada, and now along the Canadian and USA border in Buffalo, New York, borders and border crossing has been a pretty consistent part of my life for many years at this point. But what about borders I haven't ever crossed, or really even considered? When the book On the Edge, Life Along the Russia-China Border arrived from Harvard Press, I was immediately stunned to realize I had never once asked myself what life was like on that particular border of two global superpowers. I knew nothing. This book, co-authored by Dr. Frank B.A., and Dr. Caroline Humphrey is a fantastic glimpse into the ordinary and the specific relationships of the people and towns along this 2,600-mile international border. This conversation with Dr. Frank B.A. was a real thrill, and we talk about the ordinary lives of citizens crossing the border and details of cities on both sides, but we also get into the broader relationships between these two countries and we touch on the ongoing conflict between Ukraine and Russia and what that means for international relationships in general. I had a real blast and I learned a lot, so please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Frank B.A. Dr. Frank B.A., welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It is a delight to have you here, and I'm wondering if you can spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit. Sure. So I'm um, I'm trained. Um, I, I trained in social anthropology at Cambridge, and and then later on, after my PhD, I, I got more and more interested in geography. So I would see myself now as a as an anthropologist slash geographer. Mm. Um, given my interest in space and borders, I think it was it's, it's more of a it, it was a kind of a natural um, transition for me to move from from one to the other. And somewhere, 
somewhere in between. Wonderful. Uh, I'm currently the program director for the Tang Center for Silk Road Studies at UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, um, that's also something that, that is close to my interests in borders and regions that lie uncomfortably across borders. I think that's, that's, that would probably be my, my core focus is how to talk about places that are not really easily subsumed with between, you know, within one uh, nation state that, that, that go across. Uh, and spaces that tend to be difficult to map. Mm. I recently edited a collection on the idea of the state as a volume, a three-dimensional volume. Um, and that's really kind of also similar to this. I mean, it really gives you the sense of this uh, uh, space that is difficult to map um, on 2D. Um, so the idea of the, the state uh, encompassing not only the land, but also the air, and the, the subterranean, uh, and all this materiality. Um, I am currently finishing another book, uh, also on borders, uh, looking specifically at the connection between political states and bodies, and looking at bodily metaphors, such as territorial phantom pains on, and territorial prosthetics. Um, this book really tries to grasp with the, um, the attachment that uh, citizens of most nations have to edges and corners and try to understand why uh, nations might be going to war for tiny specks of territory uh, mm. that are sometimes not even inhabitable. So I guess that's uh, so that's how I would kind of uh, summarize my research generally. So really looking at borders and those spaces in between or beyond. Well, speaking of borders, I mean the the world events that we are currently witnessing with Russia and Ukraine uh -huh. have to be you know front and center on everybody's mind. Um, and if people are listening to this interview years down the line, they will certainly remember what is going on in yes. March and uh, February and March of uh, 2022 right now. But um, we'll get to that, I'm sure. Uh, do you have a, a, a timeline for when that new book that you are finishing up might be coming into the world? Um, so I'm hoping to finish a manuscript around May. Um, then it will go for review. You know, so it's, it's probably going to be, if everything goes well, it'll be 2023. Okay, cool. Um, but I have published on the topic. So there's, there's a couple of articles that are um, then becoming kind of sections of chapters. Wonderful. Um, well, yeah. you do have a, a very new co-authored book with uh, Dr. Caroline Humphrey, mm -hmm. um, which is called On the Edge, Life Along the Russia-China Border from Harvard Press. And, you know, for me personally, thinking about borders is really fascinating. I've been reflecting on my own life as I've been reading your book because I've lived in the US, Mexico, England, Canada, and now I actually live on an international border between Buffalo, New York and Fort Erie, Ontario. So borders have always personally fascinated me. And you know, what is on one side that is not on the other? What does one group have that the other doesn't have that live five minutes away? So these are questions that swirl in my mind frequently. And I'm just curious about the origin of your fascination of borders and borderlands. Where does this interest come from for you? 
Um, I think like you, I, I've, I've always found borders really fascinating. How, how these lines have been drawn very often artificially, have uh, come to have a life of their own. How two mm. individuals living just a few miles away from each other would grow up with very different life experiences. They would be socialized differently in terms of language, popular culture, geopolitical attachment, etc. So I, I didn't grow up in, in a border region, um, but I always had this fascination for what was beyond the border. What um, my parents were traveled quite a lot within the country, but never, they were not people who traveled much beyond. So I had this, this uh, desire for as a, as a child to, to go beyond the border and see what was on the other side. Um, and it's only in my late teens that I ended up, you know, going abroad. Um, so I was I was born in born and raised in France. Excellent. And and I'm I've I've always been fascinated by how borders shape imaginaries, and and we saw this very clearly at the beginning of the pandemic, when Italy shut down, its neighbor neighbors did not even immediately close their borders, as if the countries beyond the international border borderline somehow you know, constituted a different world and sort of insulated them. And it's only when their own numbers started to climb that they enacted lockdowns. And, and this is something that we saw replicated pretty much globally in the United States. It was kind of similar. It was, oh, this, this state has, uh, has very high numbers, therefore do not go there. But the state, the state next to it might, might feel very differently about it. And so oh, but here we're fine. So it's really interesting how these lines uh, are not just, you know, um, abstract. They, for, for people, they have some kind of uh, um, visceral, kind of embodied presence. And, and that's, I think that's, that's really something I find particularly fascinating. Excellent. You know, I'm wondering, uh, just re- in relation to the book, it's a very specific border, the Russia-China mm-hmm. border. Yeah. And I'm wondering how you came to be interested in Russia and China specifically. Where does your origin of interest with these two particular places stem from? So I would agree that it's a very interesting border because it's very unusual mm-hmm. in the sense that it separates two very large countries. Uh, and there are two countries that are global center of power and see themselves as civilizations in their own right. So Caroline and I were intrigued by the interface between them. We hear a lot about policies and agreements between Russia and China, pronouncements you know, between Moscow and Beijing but hardly anything about the borderland itself and the, the line of interface and the people who live in it, you know, on it or around it. So it, we, we were curious about this. So how, how, how does it feel to be there, right there on the border between these two giant nations? And per, me personally, I was especially curious about the two towns of Hecha on in the China side and, and Blagavations on the Russian side, because they're the two the only two sizable towns that you could compare in terms of you know uh, footprint uh, that are right opposite each other they're, they're basically they're just separated by a river um, and i wanted to see what it was like for these two towns and how they they would uh, imagine themselves how they would present themselves to the to the other side and how they might have things in common or how they might be different uh, so that's where i decided to carry out the bulk of the research Caroline looked at other parts of the, the border. Excellent. Well, tell me a little bit about your, your work with Dr. Caroline Humphrey. How did you come to co-author this book together? And tell me about this working relationship that the two of you have. Right. So Caroline was my PhD advisor at Cambridge. Um, at the time, uh, I was working on a dissertation. 
which was then published as a book, focusing on the, the anti-Chinese sentiments in Mongolia. So while borders did not feature explicitly in the research, the, the notion that really undergirds and sustains Mongolian forms of Sinophobia, they're very much expressed in geopolitical terms and orientation. So I guess it was kind of natural um, progression for me to just look at the border specifically after that. And my conversation with Caroline naturally gravitated towards borders in the context of East Asia. When an opportunity arose to apply for a grant to study one of the most strategic borders in the world, we thought of, the, of focusing on China and Russia. And, and the collaboration between the two of us felt like a natural evolution because we had, had so many conversations already. Um, I moved to the States in 2015. So we ended up co-authoring the book at a distance, but we had years of collaboration and conversations as a solid basis. So it was actually kind of easy and we knew each other's research and the writing process. So it was easy to divide the work and to have conversations over Zoom and, 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 and do the book together. I was, it was uh, a challenge. I was afraid <laughs> at first that the book might feel disjointed, but I think it, uh, we pulled it off. <laughs> I think you did too. It's wonderful. And, you know, I was thinking about this book and this topic in general, and I'm a person who considers myself a relatively curious person. I like learning about things in the world, but when this book landed in my lap, I thought to myself, wow, I have never once in my life considered what life is like along this particular border with these two massive world powers. And I realized that many people probably have that oversight. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, do you talk about this Absolutely. and people are like, wow, I've never thought about this before. Absolutely. And I think the way we talk about certain states, the way we talk about Russia and as, as a European state and China as an Asian state, some people might not even realize how much of a border they have in common, you know, because yeah. they're, they're seen as they're seen and, and studied in very different, uh, different, different ways. I mean, if you want to study Russia, it's, it's, there's not a lot of scope for you to then include China in your, in your research and vice versa. So very, very few people actually focusing on the relation between the two. Most people focusing on Russia will focus on, on Western Russia, and most people focusing on China will focus on the mainland, like the, you know, the, the, either the South or the, the core, and not, not the edges. So that's, yeah. another, that's another thing. It's like it's, uh, uh, Caroline and I have a, a, a co-editing a, a book series at Amsterdam University Press, where we try to encourage people uh, to pitch us books that are really about these edges. Uh, so not just Russia, China, but also Japan, Korea, all these interactions between these countries that tend to be studied separately or within separate realms, you know, Asian studies or, or Eastern European studies. So I, I, I yes, so that, that's, uh, I totally agree that it's, uh, it's something that most people would not think of. Yeah, this, this that border. is, I mean, that's an, that sounds like an amazing series as well with endless potential for years and years of research to come to light. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So let's talk about some basics a little bit about this border. Um, a lot of my audience and people that listen to this show are teachers and students and college mm -hmm. students. So um, let's talk about a little bit of some, just some basics for fun. Um, right. How long is this border between Russia and China in kilometers and miles? Okay, so it's uh, 2,600 miles, which is around 4,000 kilometers. Um, so it's quite sizable, but you also have to bear in mind that it used to be longer because Kazakhstan, 
used to be part of the Soviet Union. So if you think mm. about a, a, quite a large part of the large portion of the history, it was the, the border between the Soviet Union and China. So it included Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, etc. So it was maybe twice as long. Um, so, so I think it might have been the longest border then, the wow. longest international border. Yeah. So uh, pre-1991, this was the longest border in the world? Yeah, I, I, if it was not the longest, one of the longest, yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, I'm curious what the, this is a really long border, but I'm wondering if there's like a variation of climate or anything like that. Like what is the, the, like the climate like along this, this stretch of border? So for most of it, it's a continental uh, climate, which means that it's very cold in winter and can be quite hot also in summer. So there's a large uh, variation between seasons. Um, and so the ocean is, is far away for a, a large portion of the border. Closer to the ocean is somewhat less harsh. So Vladivostok is uh, not quite on the border, but it's in the border region. And it's an ice-free harbor, but it's still pretty cold in winter. They, they, there's always this uh, uh, people in Vladivostok. They, they call it the San Francisco of uh, of Russia, and there are oh. similarities because there's fog and there's and it's very hilly, but it freezes. You know, in winter, so it's actually much more dangerous. <laughs> than oh San gosh, it's not as mild. Yeah, excellent. Then, well, yeah. I'm curious about some of the cities as well. Um, because you know you've mentioned a couple of them, but what are some of like the the major cities on either side that are border towns uh, c- connecting China and Russia? Um, I mean, so on the Russian side, the, you would have Vladivostok at the uh, at the very uh, east uh, eastern end, um, then you'll have Khabarovsk uh, and Blagoveshensk. So that. The three sizable cities of about half a million overall. There's variation between all of them, but overall about half a million uh, people. Um, on the Chinese side, you have Manjoli, which is on the on the Mongolia-Russia-China border. Um, you have Heihe, which is opposite uh, Blagoveshensk, and Suifenhe, which is not opposite Vladivostok, but it's kind of the, uh, around that end, that end, close to close to the, the on the eastern the eastern part. A lot of your writing takes place in Heha, right? In Heha and Blagoveshensk, yes, the two the Chinese and, and Russian cities. Tell so me just, what. You, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what yeah. you were doing when you were visiting these two places. Like, how did you navigate this for you personally? Um, so as a as an outsider who's neither Chinese or Russian, uh, I needed a, a visa, so either single entry or double entry. Uh, it was not easy to go back and forth. Um, so what I did was I would fly to Beijing, uh, drive well, uh, take a train or a plane to Heihe, um, and spend some time doing research in Heihe, then go across. Uh, with a single entry visa uh, uh, in Russia and spend some time in Blagoveshensk and then return to China because I do double entry visa for China and spend more time in Khekha and then return home. So that was kind of the, 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 the classic way I would do that. Excellent. Um, one of my favorite things about your book is you talk about the accessibility across mm-hmm. these the rivers and across the borders. And I'm just so fascinated by 
your stories of phantom bridges and failed projects. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you can just talk to me about like the accessibility for Russians and Chinese on both sides of the border for these cities. Right. So, uh, so the border was closed between the 60s to the end of the 80s because of, uh, um, well, disagreements, I say political <laughs> disagreements between the two countries. So it was... Uh, it came close to, to war, actually, in the late 60s. And so the border reopened uh, in 1989, first gradually and then, uh, and then fully. Um, and when the border opened, it was a, it was a great opportunity for, uh, for both sides to trade. Um, at the time, um, you know, Russia was not in a, was in a difficult situation economically, so there was possibility to go across the border and and purchase uh, goods in China. Um, So there was a lot of, uh, we started to see a lot of movement. There was also a lot of interest, mutual interest between the two sides. Um, It was always easier for Russians to cross into China than the reverse, because uh, partly because of demographic imbalance and because of historical reasons whereby uh, Russians have been very anxious about Chinese presence. They, they are very um, worried about their uh, their grasp on the um, on the, this vast region with very very few people. Uh, they are afraid that Chinese might be able to you know move in and and over <laughs> overpower them. I mean demographically. Um, so. So the Chinese side grew much faster. Um, at that time, between Hecha and Blagaveshens, Blagaveshens was already an established city, but there was hardly anything on the other side. Hecha was just a, a cluster of a few houses, was yeah. barely barely a village. Yeah, and we have pictures in the book that show the difference between the, you know, 1990 and, and, and now, and Hecha has transformed into a, a sizable town. Yeah, the uh, pictures are amazing. Yes, actually, this is the Hecha is much more is more built up. There's more skyscrapers. There's a lot more light, um, so it's it's fully transformed uh, because there was this opportunity to trade with with uh, Russia. So people moved in from other parts of China, moved in and did business with Russia. So it's uh, um, so the the dynamic changed uh, at that time during this uh, the. the since 1990 and we we were very surprised to see that there were at the time when we did a research there was no bridges between russia and china no passenger bridges um there so if for someone living in in blagavations you see right on the other side uh just 500 meters away and to cross you need to take a boat you need to take a little ferry there's no bridges. There's no you cannot just cross. In winter, you the river the river is frozen, so you cross by bus. But again, it's a specific bus. Uh, there are actually two services: one for Russians, one for Chinese. They both have uh, both sides have a monopoly, um, and that is it's really um, it's really structured. This is very difficult. You cannot just go go across like you you might do in in other parts of the world. Um, so these phantom bridges we talk about is that this for for the the very since the time the border reopened, 
there was these talks about borders and about bridges and let's create a bridge and the chinese were willing to to do that because they would um they would be able to trade more there'd be more exchange uh, of people it would be easier to go across but the russians have been very very wary about the idea of a bridge that would just bring uh, chinese population maybe more easily into the country so there, there's been a lot of um projects that that never started or that were delayed you have bridges that are built uh on the chinese sides all the way to the middle of the river and then nothing after um so it's, it's been it's been it's, it's been really fascinating for us because we really see the what was the um the the focus the the, the priority that each country was placing so for china it was really placing uh, the, the focus on exchange, on making money, on developing. On the Chinese, mm -hmm. on the Russian side, it was all about security. Even gotcha. if you, you make less money, the, 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 the city is not building as fast, the, the priority is security. Gotcha. Well, let's talk a little bit about what's in the book itself. So in the book's introduction, uh, I was captivated by the writing about this, the quote unquote civilizational differences. Mm -hmm. And you know, these places that you write about, they're right next to each other. They can see each other across mm -hmm. these rivers. And like where I live, I picture myself here in Buffalo, New York. I, whenever I'm on the bike path in downtown Buffalo, I can see Fort Erie, Ontario. It's right there across the Niagara River. So like right. the places that you write about are right next to each other, but you write about civilizational differences. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about what this looks like, like in practice on the street, what are some of these major civilizational differences that differentiate these two places? Right. Um, so you're, you're right. It's just, they're just across from each other. And from certain angles, when you're in Hecker or Blagavations, you do not see the river and it feels like it's a, a continuous city. You have also uh, tourists coming from elsewhere in Russia, going to Blagavations, looking at Hecker, and sometimes getting confused and thinking that's the city center because it's mm. much more, it's brighter and, you know, and it's so close. So they feel it's the same city. And yet, yes, people uh, are completely different. Um, and this is another reason why we found this border to be fascinating because in most of the world's borders, the border will cut across the cultural continuum. And even in heavily surveilled borders, you know, if, if you think about the US-Mexico, I mean, yeah. in your border, US-Canada is much more, there's, there's much more con cultural continuity on, on, on both sides. Right. But if you think about Russia, if you think about the US-Mexico that are quite different, you know, two different environments, uh, heavily surveilled, still one finds a lot of historical, cultural and familial ties across absolutely you know, across the border i mean so, el paso and tijuana springs yes, to mind yes uh but even for i mean if even if you think about california generally i mean this is there's this uh, history of uh of uh mexican presence there's a lot of mexicans living here there's a, a particular flavor to it um and that's what you see in most in most of the world but it's not it's not the case here it's not the case in, in the Russia-China border because, so partly because the, the, the region, the border region was populated after the creation of the border. 
Mm. So there was there are some indigenous populations throughout the region, but it's like a substrate stratum, you know. And on top of that, you have the the Russians and the Chinese, who are much more numerous, and who come from elsewhere. A lot of Russians actually come from Ukraine because of of, of uh, population movements where they were relocated because we need you know the country needed to be populated there and they were they were taken from they were brought from elsewhere so a lot of people in Blagoveshens uh, will have you know a, a Russian that is somehow with a speaking Russian with a Ukrainian flavor. Mm. Uh, a lot of them will have a Ukrainian, you know, ties to Ukraine. So it's, they come from elsewhere. So then you have really two very discontinuous populations living just next to each other. And if you, if I just, if I were to put you in Blagovations and you didn't know where you were, you would assume you're somewhere in Eastern Europe. You would not think you're on the border of China. Hecha mm. um, has a bit of a more Russian flavor because they there's been more russians coming and they're trying to market this so there's more signs in written in in, in russian um so you feel that it's not you know a typical a chinese city but still in any other ways it's populated by chinese you eat the same food um and even the, the russian um elements that are in hecha they tend to be a little bit you know disney-esque you know they have this uh, they're more an imaginary of, of of russia rather than russian very mm. often right um, and what we explain in the book is that the hecha is not just marketing itself to the russian on the other side and at least no longer now it's it's marketing itself to tourists in China who want to get a sense of what it's like to live on the border or get a sense of what it's like to be, you know, in Russia or Russia adjacent without having to cross the border and, and, and getting a visa and all that. So it's, uh, the, the, it's a bit of a, there's a slight theme parky quality to that. Uh, but generally, you you know, you Hecha is a very, in any other ways, Hecha is a very Chinese city. Um, so in terms of civilization, I mean, that's the way uh, people would talk about it. They would see themselves as very different. They, they, in in Blagovations, you would not have people say it's a, uh, they would not see their city as hybrid. They see, no, it's a very Russian town. Um, and so when you're on the Russian side, you'll hear, you know, Russian music, you'll hear Western music. You're not going to hear Chinese music. Um, there's not a lot of signs about, you know, like Chinese uh, scripts. Um, there's not, in, if you go to the cinema, when I was there, I never saw uh, a Chinese movie. So it's mm. a very, the orientation is very um, Western. I mean, it's similar to other parts of Russia. Um, on the Chinese side, you would sometimes hear Russian music, again, because that's a way to sort of... Uh, a sign of goodwill and sign of well, we are neighbors and we're playing some of your music, but generally it will be Chinese music or, or Western as well. So, and in terms of food, same, you know, so, so all these kind of a sensorial element is very, also very different on, on, on either side. I so mean, that is crossing the border. You, you cross the border within, you know, like after 500 meters, you're in a different world. It's yeah. Yeah. 
Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I mean, that is really amazing. And earlier I said El Paso, Tijuana, when I went meant El Paso, Juarez. So I, I screwed up back there. But um, it's just really interesting to think about how stark those changes are on this border whenever you go, like if you're familiar with the border here in the U.S., like you can see those cultures uh, influence each other for far greater distances on either side. Oh, boy. Um yeah. You know, when I was, as the author yourself with, with Dr. Humphrey, I was captivated by your acknowledgement of how challenging this work is as the writer. And in the introduction, you both write that the border where people are embedded is dissimilar social systems on either side and mostly cannot speak each other's language is where conflicting versions of history and attitudes to the future become starkly visible. And I found that quote to be so fascinating because of telling those two different versions of the story for you as the authors must have been incredibly challenging. And I'm wondering how you seek to tell those stories when the versions are starkly different. How do you go about that as the author? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, and I, I would say that's really the challenge of anthropology as a discipline, um, trying, to, trying to learn to listen to people's story and trying to understand, to understand it from their perspective. So it doesn't mean you you'll necessarily have to remain uncritical. Uh, you know, if there's maybe if you if there's some issues with the way things are presented, of course you could also talk to people openly. But it's 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 your task to keep an open mind. Um, I I would say that although the the his the, the histories are different. I mean, it's not that the histories are completely different. It's just that some parts are emphasized. Um, the the Chinese uh, side uh, will tell you about the the Chinese presence in the Russian Far East, and that's something that's kind of been silenced or that's definitely not made very explicit on the Russian side. When when you ask people, they will tell you, well, there were there were Manchu and there were uh, people who are now minorities in China, so therefore it's. Chinese, you know, there was a Chinese presence, but not, it was not a Han Chinese presence. They said there were a presence of Asian populations are now within the Chinese nation. And therefore, you know, China might say it's a Chinese presence, but they were, so they would, they would try to counter it in that way. Uh, but there were, there were a lot of, uh, during the, 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 the 60s in particular, a lot of names of uh, towns were changed on the Russian side. There was a lot of Chinese names that were turned into Russian names. So this is not; these are not the things that you're told 
when you go to see a Russian museum, for instance. So the, the, mm. these histories are kind of different. But to be honest, it was not, I, di I didn't find it particularly challenging in the sense that on both sides, there's a lot of goodwill. Mm -hmm. uh, people know that they had a checkered history, that they, they were very difficult uh, decades, uh, but they, they recognize that they have to live with each other. So they're, they're trying not to make that, um, they're, they're not making it too, you know, they're not very forceful about it, I would say. And, and that was quite different from my previous research. And it was a welcome change, actually, because mm. my earlier work in Mongolia, because I'm because the focus, the very focus of my research was uh, to look at the anti-Chinese sentiment. So there was I I heard a lot of, you know, very pretty xenophobic and, and racist speech. And I was kind of it was kind of difficult to to deal with. And uh, yeah. the anthropologists who work with, you know, uh, um, fringe, you know, racist groups, you know, right wing groups, they, they have to deal with that. And that's really, I, I think it's, for me, it's, I, it's not something I could do. I find it very, very difficult, very challenging to try and, and keep a step back and try to not, of course, never be, um, never apologizing, never, you know, kind of a, excusing anything but try to understand even perspective of people i would find it very challenging this was not really the case it was very drastically different very dramatically different between the two sides but not not in in an aggressive way interesting well you know and i got the impression from the text that russia is extremely interested in working with china mm -hmm. as long as it doesn't involve chinese people coming into russia like I, I got that feel while I was reading it. And I'm wondering if I had that right and if there is like any xenophobia or racism underlying the relationships between these two countries and, or if I'm completely off base here. Um, I, I think there is to an extent that maybe the two sides do not know each other well enough yet. Mm. Um, there are more and more Russians learning Chinese. Oh, cool. Um, it's the second most popular language in the, in many cities in the Far East after English. Um, and, and there are more and more Russian, young Russians who think, well, you know, China is, a, is a, maybe a good place to go and do some work, um, to, to work later, because there's not, not a lot of opportunities in the Russian Far East. Um, although, um, I would say that very often they see Chinese language as a a bridge to you know to going abroad um, rather than a way of embracing Chinese culture. I think the way um, when I interviewed a lot of students who are learn Chinese, they would say, well, you know, if we speak Chinese, we can go to you know southern China. It's a very international. They were really kind of stressing the the fact that it was international, that it was, there were a lot of Europeans there, a lot of Americans, a lot of Africans, or people from all over the world. So it was more a way to, uh, to access these international environments rather than really learning Chinese because of a, a particular passion for Chinese culture, for instance. I didn't find a lot of, a, um, I didn't find that China had a very strong soft power in Russia, particularly, it was more kind of a, a, a useful language to learn.
something that would open doors for you. Um, on the Chinese side, um, I mean, if also when you when you find at the border is also you have to there you have to remember these are two still provincial towns, right? So um, I I I noticed very often the way that the Russians would talk to the Chinese in Hekha would be very different from the way they would talk to Chinese elsewhere in China, maybe from, you know, from, from in Beijing or, 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 or Shanghai. They were sometimes very dismissive. They would use the, the informal, uh, informal ways of addressing them. You know, using, you know in, in Russian, there's two different you, like in French, mm-hmm. uh, and they would use the informal you to speak to people in stores and, 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 and trade and traders, and that's something they would never do if they, you know, if they went to, uh, if they went you know, to Europe or, or or America or or even you know other parts of China. So, so there's there's, there's there was some bruise, you know, kind of not a bit rough on the edges, <laughs> and 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 Chinese have res- and responded to that. Um, very often, I, I would get not very nice treatment when I would go into a store and then I will, they would ask me about Russia and say, oh, I'm not Russian. And then suddenly the attitude would change. So um, it's not that Russians are unpleasant. It's just they can, they're, culturally, they're quite different. They can be more abrupt. And it's something that, you know, uh, Chinese have kind of learned to recognize. And, and also um, when Chinese trade with Russian, they also tend to adopt the same kind of uh, attitudes. Now they tend to be less willing to to bargain, and they're more more abrupt as well. So there's there's an element of uh, misunderstanding, I would say, more than xenophobia. More than xenophobia. I didn't. I was afraid of that actually going into as I as I mentioned before after having done research in Mongolia. I was a bit worried of having the same you know racist speech kind of right there at, you know in uh having to deal with that but i know if i saw one anti-chinese uh graffiti and it had been crossed out by somebody else only one oh, okay you know? so i say you don't really see that it's more people recognize that you know they're different we have to deal with them so it's more a pragmatic approach okay uh, rather than either you know hatred or dislike or it's, it's, it's not that it's not the kind of fully embraced either so sort of yeah i see okay oh i'm i'm glad to be to be proven wrong there um that's a lot more of a positive uh you but, know but interpretation I, but if i i must say that the the, the, the ideas of china might be different elsewhere in russia Mm. Uh, the fear that, uh, that that China is taking over the Russian Far East is more something you would hear in Western Russia, where they they, are, they, are, they don't know, they just assume. Uh, whereas in on the borders, they know that's not the case. So there's much less of a, of that. So there's you know there's a a, a scholar uh, from the Russian Far East, a Russian scholar, a friend told us once, you know, in, if, you, if you're in Moscow, you, they assume, they, they, the way they describe the Russian fairies, they think there's just Chinese and bears. You know, there's no one, it's just Chinese. <laughs> in there. So they have no idea, basically, something they don't know. And they would not, you tell them the name Blagovations, but other people would not have a clue where it is, even though it's one of the, one of the three most important towns on the border, they don't, they never heard of it. So, there's, so it's, it's a different, it's a different way you are. Excellent. Well, I mean, we're, 
living through a really important uh, moment in history with the recent Russian mm-hmm. invasion of China. Yes. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit about trade as well. You've brought it up a couple of times and I want to hone in on that and nail it down a little more purposefully here. But, um, you know, from reading the text, I kind of got the impression that Russia needs China a little bit more than China needs Russia with regards to trade matters. And um, yet Russia wants to, you know, emanate an image of strength. And I'm curious about the power differential with regards to trade and influence Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, motivates each side. And, you know, if there's any change in that relationship that you're noticing with regards to the recent uh, military invasions that are roiling the world at the moment. Right. So I think... um... I think what I can say about uh, that particular border would probably have some relevance to to <laughs> to the, the what's happening with Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, Russia really still sees itself as a world power. I mean, it sees itself as you know. I mean, it is in some way, but it sees itself as much more of a world power than it actually is. And and with China, it has not really Russians have not really been prepared to treat Chinese as as full equals. You know, there's still this general perception that China is poorer. That and of course that's changing for Russians who have traveled further south and to larger cities. But there's still this idea that China is has not quite is not quite developed yet. And even looking at people in Blagavations looking at Hekka on the other side which is brighter and, you know, for skyscrapers, they would just describe it as fake. They think, oh, it's not, it's not real. It's just, it's just a front. You know, if you just go a little bit beyond the, the, um, the, the riverfront, there's actually, there's nothing there. You know, you have really bad housing. And, and it's true to an extent that the, 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 large, the, the nicest uh, architecture is right there on the board, on the right down the, on the, on the river. Um, because it's uh, you know prime real estate, um, but there's there's this idea that um, Russia is still kind of the you know the elder brother leading the way, and that's has been very challenging for for Russians to accept that this might no longer be the truth that China China is actually you know ahead of them in many ways. Um, so. Um, I, I, I think that also speaks to what's happening, you know, with Ukraine. Uh, mm-hmm. There's the sense that Russia wants to protect itself, so um, wants to uh, demonstrate its strength. Um, and there's, there's also the, the sense uh, for Ukraine that, uh, that it's not really, I mean, it's still part of Russia in some way. And that's something I discuss in my current, the book I'm finishing, this idea of phantom territories, that territories that you recognize are no longer yours, but somehow they still have this, they still have this, um, they still elicit this kind of uh, affective power that is mm. somehow is still, it's not, it's no longer Russia, you know, but it's still somehow not foreign either. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's kind of an interesting, so the, the, they use the idea of backyard, the, the, the idea of uh, uh, the kind of, a, you know, the, I mean, the backyard, I think it's, it's a really good image, the sense that it's, it's, you know, it's still part of your uh, possession. I mean, the backyard in, in, in your house, you know, it's not the house itself, but it's still within your realm. 
So, uh, and that's and you see that as well with the the Russia China border. There's some some cities in China like Harbin, for instance, they're still seen as seen as Russian because they were they were established by Russia. You know, it was established by Russia. It's uh, it, there's still this kind of Russian flavor and and. And people in Russia will say, oh, when we go to Harbin, we feel at home. It's like, it feels like it's, it's our, it's mm. our town. And there's also the recognition that a lot of the Russian Far East, you know, is subject to similar phantom uh, sentiments from, on the part of the Chinese. Gotcha. You know, and something else, you touch on other spots too that are related to aggression and assimilation. Um, you know, I was intrigued to see the Uyghur assimilation and re-education efforts mentioned in the book, the attempted assimilation of Hong Kong, the suppression of Tibet. This sort of reminds me of what has, you know, been happening in, in Crimea as well. And it's now happening mm-hmm. with the surrounding of you, an invasion of Russia, uh, of, of Ukraine by Russia. And I'm wondering how it feels for you as an anthropologist that you cover countries that have aggressive tactics of suppression being a part of their regular existence mm-hmm. how does this sit with you as a person who you know goes these places frequently and has to incorporate this kind of stuff into your work mm-hmm. so that's uh, this is something i've been thinking about quite a lot and is doing research in countries like russia and china is with authoritarian regimes and with um, with um, uh, with assimilation and suppression of minorities, and sometimes in very violent ways, um, is very challenging. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about because, on the one hand, you you wonder whether you know you should continue, you should actually go uh, uh, and spend time in these places because if you go there, you have to be very careful what you say. And your silence can be seen as collusion. Mm. Um, so what do you do? Do you continue doing research in China and then say nothing when the subject comes up or in Russia? I mean, Russia now is out of bounds for everyone working there. But generally, I mean, like it's, it's you know, up, up, up to two weeks ago. Um, do, do you go there? But if you do not go there, then are you abandoning people? Are you, do you, you know, you have responsibilities as well. So it's, are you, if you do not go, are you leaving the Uyghurs, you know, without a voice? Mm. Um, but then if you go, can you actually, uh, can you actually convey whether, you know, can, first, do you have access to them? Do you have access to these populations in a way that does not endanger them? Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's really difficult. I mean, it's, I think it's a personal choice. I think that's for me, I've, I've decided not to do research in either Russia or China now for, for the moment. Um, um, but it's, it's a very difficult decision. I, I, I'm, I'm working on a, on a collection with two colleagues of mine on the idea of redaction, on the idea of how what is it to what is it like to do research in places like Russia, China, North Korea? Like one of my two colleagues works on on Tibet, and the other one on North Korea. How do you do research there? Do you can you do that? How do you write about it in a way that you know uh, does not endanger uh, yourself, uh, but especially your interlocutors? 
um, and it's, it's and we feel as we work on this project, we feel it's becoming increasingly relevant. Not only because you know we we want to challenge this dichotomous uh, division between you know authoritarian on one side and non-authoritarian on the other side, because things are changing very quickly. The situation in Europe, the situation in the United States, is becoming different. I mean, it's you know in the United States, it's it's, it's exhibiting worrying signs of yeah. things that you cannot say. I mean, if you work on the on the border with Mexico, for instance, you know, people have been arrested because they've left water for uh, for migrants. They've you mm -hmm. know they've tried to in 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 Europe as well. People have been arrested because they tried to rescue people from boats you know so you also have to that so what we've learned working in these difficult um contexts is becoming important toolkits for people working anywhere really yeah well um this book has been a a real important uh text for me because it's got me thinking about borderlands much more broadly around the world and has exposed me to a massive blind spot that I'm kind of shocked that I never really considered. So I'm very grateful to you for your work and for this Thank book. You. And, you know, I'm wondering if uh, you could just tell people uh, if, if they want to follow your work or anything like that, what they should check out um, or anything like that. Do you have anything that you'd like to point people to? Um, I have a website where I try to centralize <laughs> uh, kind of the, the, the various uh, pieces of work I've, I've uh, uh, I mean, the various projects I've been working on. So either pro pro books that have been published or books are in progress or new projects I'm kind of thinking about. Um, so I, um, so they could, uh, they can just check the website, which is uh, my name, frankba.com. Um, I'm, I have also a presence on Twitter, but I'm barely, <laughs> so <laughs> I would say the website is probably the best way to then people can, I'm very happy for people to get in touch with me by email and ask questions or, or discuss things, you know, uh, so yeah, people should feel free to do that. I'm very, I'd be very glad to hear that, especially doing with the pandemic with no, you know, no conferences and everything. You feel sometimes that you, you publish something and it falls into some kind of abyss yes <laughs> and you don't know whether people read it you have no idea you don't talk to you about it so it's uh uh it's it's good to yeah it's I'm, I'm very happy to get feedback positive or negative or suggestions or yeah definitely excellent uh, could be the best the best way yeah well dr frank ba um i have loved this conversation and the book on the edge life along the russia china border which you co-author with dr caroline humphrey and is out now from harvard press Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a real thrill. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, I was very, very glad to talk to you about this. Thank you. <laughs>